Hey everyone, the episode you're about to listen to is one of the very first ones that we did, and the sound recording is not that great. It took us a little bit to hit our stride, and we enjoyed these first episodes, but they maybe aren't our strongest ones. So we've got some better equipment and honed our skills. The recording quality gets a lot better around episode 10. Stick it out, keep listening, it gets better from here. I'm Ben, and you're listening to Sound Logic. And this is Mike. Each episode, you get to hear us ramble about music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone's Top 500 list. Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. Welcome back, and today we are discussing album number two on Rolling Stone's Top 500 album list. This album is Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. Ben, have you listened to this album before doing this project? Yeah, this is an album I'm really excited to talk about. I think during my sort of high school, college musical awakening, our uh, mutual friend Dustin Wood, someone who we'd often go to Future Shop with and and browse the CD bins. He was in music college at the time and was always buying music. Uh, For him, he he used to say it was like uh, getting a new textbook and he would justify, you know, getting stacks and stacks of uh, music just to test out and see. And we were talking one day, uh, I think at work, about Brian Wilson's upcoming album called Smile. I mentioned that I was interested in that as well, and he asked me what else I had. At the time, all I had was those, one of those low-budget greatest hits albums, which was Surf Rock Sound. And he said, what, you don't have pet sounds? That's, That's on the top of your list. And he would do this quite often, but he'd like take a CD off the shelf put it in my hands and say, go buy it now. <laughs> and I didn't always listen to him, but this time I think I did. And uh, so I, I brought Pet Sounds home and really from the first listen, I was pretty captivated. Um, the album that I purchased had both the original mono recording as well as the stereo recording. So uh, I guess there was enough space on a CD to hold both of those. And uh, yeah, so it, it, it was an album that I really got to know uh, well, and so I guess I've been listening for 14, 14, 15 years now. It's uh, it's definitely one that I'll, I think I'm going to enjoy talking about today. How about you? I had not heard this album before I had heard of it, and certainly I know the popular songs on it. Wouldn't It Be Nice, Soup John B, God Only Knows. know those songs, but I didn't know the other ones. So this was exciting for me, brand new. Certainly a familiar sound, a really exciting album. I'm really definitely some earworms in there and as I've been listening in the past few weeks uh, there's a few that have been stuck in my head it's uh, it's really good but no I had not I had not sat down with this album before yeah it's pretty great and I think what made it so surprisingly good for me early on was how different it sounded than I think what I assumed the Beach Boys sound like you know that it's so much more than that it, it's got little nuggets that do sound like that surf surf sound early 60s music but there's so so much more there that that totally caught me by surprise it wasn't at all really like the greatest hits album that i had and uh, it was just so much more that that was exactly my feeling of it too that i i expected it to be more surfy more of that yeah. surf sound uh not fam- familiar with many of the beach boy songs but not all their albums necessarily in their chronological order and how the evolution of the band. We, we've talked about this. We're going to talk about more evolutions of bands and how their sound changes. I wasn't really familiar with this, so I expected it to be a little more surfy. Um, I wasn't disappointed that it wasn't. I just was 
uh, pleasantly surprised that there was a lot more than that. Yeah. A lot more than just that surf sound, you know, a little deeper. And we'll get into why this album is so great going forward, but there's so much going on. Uh, let's give a little context about this album. This was released uh, May 16th in 1966. This was the band's 11th studio album. And I want to, I really want to comment on this, especially we're in the age where if bands even do albums anymore, you know, you're getting one maybe every five years, okay? They started releasing albums in 1962. By 1966, this is their 11th studio album. Wow. It's just an insane amount of music. Between 63 and 65, they had three albums a year. We're not talking just, you know, eight tracks whipped together real quick that didn't do anything. These are like, you know these songs. Right. You know, they did very, very well. Now, there is a caveat here. This album was written by Brian Wilson, but not only was it yep. written, it, it's um, it's really his baby. Yeah. The band was about to set it on tour. He was feeling completely run down and said, go on without me. And they said, what are you kidding me? How can we be the Beach Boys without Brian Wilson? And he said, don't worry. All this time I'm going to spend recuperating, rediscovering myself is going to lead to an incredible amount of songs. So what we get here is not necessarily the Beach Boys releasing this album on May 16th, 1966. I see it much more as like, this is Brian Wilson's brain, sort of with a little dusting of Beach Boys on top. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And from what I read as well, uh, there was debate about this being a solo album. And they had considered it, I, I'm not sure have to read up again why exactly decided not to do that because the beach boys were so popular uh decided to keep doing it but because he wrote it pretty much on his own it was going to be his album and, and yes he certainly is it is brian wilson the whole thing absolutely it's also um we can get into this a little bit later too but it's also the historic wrecking crew which is this uh, los angeles based group of musicians who recorded on pretty much every major album through the 60s and 70s uh, that was that was recorded in Southern California. Um, they were studio session musicians who, if you needed someone to come in and play a guitar riff or a drum beat or a bass line, you called these guys up and they'd send one of their people over. So not only is it Brian Wilson's genius, it's also being primarily played by this this. Uh, this group of sort of legendary studio musicians that no one knows about. There uh, was a documentary made a few years ago called The Wrecking Crew, and it's amazing. Uh, it'll it'll just blow your mind in terms of uh, all the different ways that they contributed to music's history and took almost no credit in the process. Wow. The artists got all the recognition and attention. Meanwhile, these people sort of created all the music that we know from that era. Um, and it's really, it's really an amazing story. So it, yeah, it, it's, it's part Brian Wilson, it's part uh, wrecking crew and somehow it gets released as the beach boys. Brian Wilson gets, a, you know, the primary writing credit on every track. And then you've, you've got, you know, some of the other guys, some other people in there. Um, and I think Mike Love even had a lawsuit, you know, in the nineties to try and get, on there, which I, I believe he won. So, yeah, there's a little bit of politics there. And I hadn't heard of the Wrecking Crew. Uh, I feel a little embarrassed to say that before 
reading about this and hearing what you're having to say, I, I would love to see that documentary. I think that's very interesting because there is a huge, massive machine behind the music industry of people and organizations and companies that make it work. Right. And people who don't get in that spotlight. But the people in the industry, the artists and the other people, they know who these support people are. Oh, you need a saxophone here? Call this guy. Right. Like, of course that happens. That happens in every industry, in every uh, city for music, you know, of course. So th that's really cool. And, and then if you're, in the, <laughs> if you're in the industry, you know, if you were down in that area in the late 60s, you probably would have been on some pretty big albums because they were all huge. Right. And as we discussed before, and we'll discuss a lot, the amount of music and the amount of historical, iconic, timeless music that was released in the last five years of the 60s is staggering. Yep. And charts are interesting. We talked about, you know, how important is the popularity of the album, but I, I like to at least list it. You know, it. The album hit number 10 in the U.S., number 2 in the U.K., um, and it, again, it goes to show that uh, a chart number, a chart position doesn't necessarily indicate how well an album's going to do and how influential it's going to be and how long it's going to last in the in the relevancy of pop culture. You know, it didn't sit at number one for weeks and weeks and weeks like Sgt. Pepper's, but it doesn't mean that it's not a great album. It's certified platinum in the U.S., which is a million albums, uh, but it took a long time to get there. The makeup of the songs was so outside of what the record label was expecting from the Beach Boys that they were actually quite frustrated when they heard the finished product. Huh. And um, I read today that they actually released a Beach Boys Greatest Hits album right at the same time of releasing this brand new album oh, wow. in an effort to hopefully re recoup some of the major financial flop that this was bound to be. The Beach Boys Greatest Hits album that's released at the exact same time ends up charting slightly above it. It was at like number eight. So they had two top 10 albums at the same time. Uh, both did really well. It wasn't just the uh, success of the greatest hits and the flop of the other, but uh, you know it was it was not an album that the record company was super excited about. We talked on the last episode that this album inspired the Beatles to write Sgt. Pepper's, and I I made a mistake. I mentioned that this was inspired by Revolver. That's not true. Uh, this album was inspired by Rubber Soul. Rubber Soul came out in '65. Beatles Rubber Soul. And then they started writing this, or Brian Wilson started writing it in 65 and into 66. It came out, and Revolver came out right after, because they were basically working on the albums, the two different bands, at the same time. And then after, you know, they were done Revolver, they quit touring, uh, the Beatles, that is, and then, you know, they, they were listening to this album, Pet Sounds, that's when they went, oh, man, you know, this oh, this shows how much more we can do in the studio. Let's go back. Right, right. And, and, of course, as we discussed, they knew they weren't touring anymore, so not only could they spend more time, also knew they didn't have to replicate it live. Right. So it gave them so much more. We already talked about that, but, again, that's the flow of how these bands have influenced, and I love the timeline and just the story that that tells. But uh, we're talking about the Beach Boys. We don't want to talk too much about the Beatles. We talked about them last episode. We're going to talk about them next episode. Um, <laughs> be lots of Beatles there. 
it sounded a little bit in the history that I was looking at today that Brian Wilson also felt like he could, for the first time ever, try and write songs that didn't necessarily have to be uh, replicated live. And so you get all this really funky instrumentation, including a train noise, dogs barking, Coke cans, and you know, other things at different times. Uh, it's clear that, that these are not songs that they're ever hoping to reproduce. And in some ways, I think that pushes the artistic nature of the album more than, than ever. Speaking of the artistic nature of it, when we talked about Sgt. Pepper's, the comment was made that that's sometimes considered as the first concept album. Same concept is made about this album that came out a year earlier. Yeah. Does this feel like a concept album to you? It, when I listen to it, I don't really feel it in terms of what you know what our idea of a concept album is. A thread of musical themes or lyrical or topical themes that go through it. I don't really hear it. What about you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's got the same issue that uh, we had with Sgt. Pepper's, whereas when we think today of a concept album, we think of something that's just really outside the box and strange and often poorly executed. Um, this may have been outside the box, but it's it's done so well, done to perfection, that I have a hard time uh, looking back and calling this a concept album. Perhaps in the moment, it felt like one, and perhaps because of how revolutionarily uh, received it was in the music industry. It felt like a concept album. Uh, now it just seems like a really solid uh, <laughs> grouping of songs and a really well done, yeah. uh, well polished album. The The fact that it was written by someone who's kind of holed up in his house, not feeling all that well, that also does sort of make me feel like, okay, maybe the term is justified. Uh, you know, someone going out on their own and, and creating this masterpiece. Um, but it also led to uh, some pretty intense studio moments as well. Uh, apparently, the story goes that um, the lyrics for Wouldn't It Be Nice, when the band finally was back in the studio, uh, you know, contributing their vocal harmonizing, it took a week for them to record the vocals for just that single song until it was at a point where Brian Wilson was satisfied. Uh, wow. So it wasn't just... Uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this all together. This is my baby. There was also this other level of like, and I want it to be perfect. Uh, and we're going to just keep doing it until it is. Um, it'd be interesting, I think, to hear the members of the album talk through this to hear if they felt like it was worth the effort or if, you know, take one was just as good as take 385 and it was just someone who was starting to lose touch that was pushing them to that, but I don't I don't know the band well enough to know that kind of story or side of things. We always talk about the album cover. But I don't know the story on this. Like they went to a zoo, they went to the children's section, they're they're feeding some goats. Uh, do you have any <laughs> insight on this? Well, okay, so we might actually have a deep Mike and Ben connection to this album cover. <laughs> okay. Lay it on me. Did okay. Meredith and I take you and Nora to both the official San Diego Zoo as well as the sort of like African Lion Safari kind of outdoor San Diego Zoo, or did we just go to one? Nora and I have been to the San Diego Zoo, and I think it was when we went two years earlier, like in 2006, before you guys had moved there. So uh, Okay. Well, it's not as cool of a story then. This is a San Diego 
zoo in the children's petting area, which I have definitely been to, and I think you have too. We just right. unfortunately we weren't there at the same time. Okay, <laughs> um, but yeah, so they went to the San Diego Zoo. They uh, fed some goats and decided that's what they wanted for the album cover. It is a strange one. Music aside, the album cover is the most dated thing about this <laughs> this whole thing. I can't tell if. Like it's supposed to be this thing where people look and go, oh, man, it's so amazing. Uh, <laughs> it tells so much, you know, and people just, like, go nuts. And I, and I look and go, I, I don't get it, man. Yeah, some goats. It's, Great. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, they're, it's they're, cute. And, you know, I hate that They're not even word. all that interested. You know, for something that they apparently slaved over in the, in the studio for so long, to just, like, kind of do a weird random photo shoot yeah. at a petting zoo feels like an afterthought. Like we haven't really given this much, and I uh, I don't know much about the album title either. Why uh, why call it Pet Sounds? That seems like a strange choice based on the depth of the tracks as well. Maybe there's an answer out there somewhere. Uh, loyal listeners, you can write in and tell us uh, for sure. And, and I'm sure there's a story somewhere. But I, I would almost say that you know your 11th studio album from a guy who was probably. You know, you know, dealing with a lot of stuff was focused on the music. When it came time to have the album produced and finalized in a cover, maybe he t- didn't really care what was on the cover. Like, just yeah. <laughs> guys, just get it. Do your thing. You know, just get it out there. Like I did the music. Right. Take care of the rest. You know, so I could see that. Yeah, and if you're putting out two albums a year uh, and you're taking a week to record the vocals on one track, you better get get to crunch time for the next thing. It's throw a picture on the front and start exactly. recording the next the, album. The cover is the last thing I want. So yeah, I want to go through the track listing. 13 tracks on this album. We've got Wouldn't It Be Nice? You Still Believe in Me? That's Not Me. Don't talk, put your head on my shoulder. I'm waiting for the day. Let's go away for a while. Sleep John B. God only knows. I know there's an answer. Here today. I just wasn't made for these times. Pet sounds. Caroline, no. Lots of music. Uh, any tracks jump out to you there? Yeah. There's this part of this album that's just really sappy, sentimental. Some really deep love songs, but then there's also just some really, really great songs, too. And some, some of those are also sappy and sentimental. Track eight, God Only Knows, is a song that often makes me think of the uh, closing airport scene of the movie Love Actually 
Um, I don't love that film as much as I used to, but uh, it it reminds me. I, I I watched it for the first time while doing a study abroad, kind of missing friends and family, and then there's this like sappy reuniting airport scene at the end, and uh, so that song always makes me think of that that moment in the movie. I think it's just I think it's just really well crafted. The opening track wouldn't it be nice if it just such an interesting sound the, those op- that opening line with, I don't even know you don't even know what that is what are they using no. I don't know what it is uh, it's it's probably a combination of a couple different sounds and it's dissonant it's almost like it's a little bit out of key so it, it kind of grabs you like ooh what's happening here then they go into it and it changes key you know into yeah. wouldn't it be nice and then you're right into it and they come back to that opening key again but it's just that song not only is it a popular hit that we're all very familiar with but I find it just jumps right out at you Um, God Only Knows is one that I hadn't heard probably only about five or ten years ago it's one that I wasn't familiar with when I heard it and when I first heard it it was under the context that here's a song that Paul McCartney says is his he thinks is the best song ever. It's his favorite song. I thought, <laughs> oh, what? What is this? So I listened to it and went, yeah, that is a well put together tune. That yeah. is, it's complex. It's diverse. It does a lot of different things. The lyrics are very compelling. Um, and it's, it's a real gem. But again, one I, you know, it's not a, it's not one you hear on the radio all the time. Yeah. And so I hadn't heard it, and uh, it's a great one. Um, and since I started listening to it, uh, That's Not Me, third track on the album, that one's just been stuck in my head. It's, I don't know if it's my favorite song or not, it's just kind of something about it. And lyrically, again, it's kind of that, it's reflecting growing up and who you are. Yeah, I really like it. It's often a, uh, a road trip album that I'll put into the CD folder. It's getting... Uh, less and less frequent that I bring CDs along on car rides, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's just one that I can put on, and it's generally appreciated by whoever I'm driving with, uh, right. adults and kids alike. And um, it's interesting enough. There, there are a couple of slower songs that you know, I might skip if I'm feeling too drowsy or right. something. But the way that the um, the fifth track, I'm waiting for the day, comes in with the like. I don't know if they're tempeh drums or something like that. It's like this, like, yes. And I don't know, there's just a couple of moments like that where it's like, it feels like someone's orchestrating something uh, bigger than just uh, what, I, what I expect from an album from the 60s in this time. The other thing that I'll say is that Dustin's recommendations of albums I must own didn't always pan out. And <laughs> And so it was, it was great to like be told, this is an important piece of music history, sort of be a little apprehensive about buying it based on you know my preconceived notions, and then find out that it really actually was remarkable and wonderful. It was highly recommended, and it lived up to that hype. It, in fact, probably exceeded it for me. As I had said, I don't really have memories with this album, but one of the tracks I, I certainly know very well, and in, in the mid-90s. My dad was part of one of those uh, CD clubs, you know, where you, you get the book with the stickers, you put the stickers in the mail, and you get all the CDs back if you want. 
and uh, a movie that we watched a lot. We used to visit my dad every other weekend, and usually Friday night was a movie night. And one that we owned and we watched a lot was Forrest Gump. And we had the soundtrack, which was a double disc, um, and really that soundtrack was a history of American music. That's what that soundtrack was. And yeah. Right through from the from Elvis in the fifties, uh, who Forrest Gump meets as he's a kid, and it goes right through American popular music. And uh, so John B's on the soundtrack, so we listen to that soundtrack a lot. So I I was very familiar with this song. Yeah. Uh, I can't even remember now what part of the movie it's from, but but I know the song very well because we uh, we let that thing play a whole lot. I think it's when he gets uh, his boat and names are Jenny. It, that is probably it, out on the open water with Lieutenant Dan. Right. Did you have any preconceived notions before getting? I mean, I know you said our friend Dustin kind of kind of dumped it on you right in the moment. Like, hey, you got to listen to this. But did, did right. you have any notions of what you thought this album would be before you listened to it? I expected this to be, you know, a better version of Surf in the USA. And it's not. It's not that at all. And so my preconceived notions were, this is going to be music that I listened to in my dad's truck on the old East Station. And it's going to be well done, but not really my style. And in fact, it was not my style, but really enjoyable. And enjoyable enough to be part of my regular music rotation in a way that I wasn't really expecting. I, I really didn't, didn't know what to expect. I just didn't. Again, I don't know their chronology very well. Yeah. Um, I did expect it to be surfy, which it's not. It certainly has that sound, that feel that, you know, is typical of their sound. But it's not a surf album, even though it has some of those notes. And I did certainly didn't realize that this was their 11th album. And I think when you know that about a band, there is an expectation. So I didn't have that expectation. Now knowing I can hear it, you can hear the, you know, the development, the maturity in the songwriting there, which goes with making music for that long. I mean, I say that long, it was only, it's only four years, <laughs> but in terms of the amount of music they've done, you know, you certainly grow and learn from that. And that's evident in this album. Yeah. Another thing I really want to mention, we've touched on it a few times, the instrumentation in this album is staggering. Yeah, it's it's like they went out and found every instrument they could and found a way to put it somewhere in the album. There is there's there's you can hear accordions, you can hear bells and all sorts of percussion. We talked about timpani. You can hear you know almost like glockenspiel and hammer dulcimers, uh, uh, whistles. We talked about other ambient sounds like animal noises and tin cans. Like everything's in this album. Yeah, and it sounds orchestrated. Like it sounds like. Yes. Like there, sure. there must have been pages and pages of, of music for each track. And I think the one that maybe that stands out the most to me on is the title track, Pet Sounds. Uh, doesn't have any vocals at all, and I think nope. uh, that I had heard it was in the running for a, a Bond film theme song. And it's, it's got almost that kind of like sultry swing to it, um, but it's, right. it's, it's a full blown orchestra. It's not, it's not a, it's not a rock band jamming out. It's uh, it's really well done. 
Um, it's got some twangy, surfy guitar mixed in, and other songs do too at times. But um, yeah, it's it's not necessarily an album that has a high sing-alongable quality either. There are refrains that are familiar, but it doesn't strike me as um, a lot of their other big hits where, you know, uh, everyone sing along while we sing, fun, 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 till our daddy takes the T-bird away. You know, it's not like that. It's, uh, <laughs> it's just good. Pet Sounds is one of two completely instrumental tracks on the album, which yeah. I think is, I think that takes a lot of courage to, to do that. Yeah. But it, wor- it works. I, the other one is Let's Go Away for a While. Which I, I love the way they place those too because that's just that track comes just before Sleep John B, which is a, a heavy. It really leans on the lo- uh, the vocals in that track, so they yeah. need one that's instrumental and then a, a vocal heavy one or two. Sleep John B and then God only knows, very vocal heavy, more significant vocals. So, in your opinion, is this album still relevant? It doesn't sound dated. Okay. I think it's both. I think this album, I think Pet Sounds does sound dated, but a big reason for that is the Beach Boys vocal styles. There's like that almost nasally falsetto that comes through so frequently in so many of their songs, stacked with harmonies on top of that. Um, It sounds like it's from a different era. On the flip side, it sounds so much more relevant than the, the... more straight up surf rock. And I think because of the depth and layering and, and arrangement, it sounds really relevant, even though you can tell it wasn't made right now. So (laughs) is the album relevant? Absolutely. Is it dated? Absolutely. And I think that's okay. In this case, it's still an (laughs) album I'm going to listen to. Um, even if it does sound a little dated, there's lots of good music that feels like it's from another era and has the power I think to transport you back to that era when you listen to it it has some of that stereotypical surf sound and that is I yeah. agree what dates it sonically I think a lot of it's relevant and to me yeah. what's relevant is the lyrics I'm listening to the lyrics and they are not stuck in a particular time to me most of them they I think you could fit them just about anywhere it's not like some of their other songs about a specific type of car that only would have been, you know, very popular in a certain span of time. This talks about relationships and uh, a lot of different aspects of different relationships. And I think that to me, the lyrics are far more relevant even than the sound, but the sound other than some of those typical surf sounds are, I think it does, it does stand the test of time. I think that's right. And it, it makes me wonder about the sort of struggles of an artist and how that can lead you to some of your, your greatest accomplishment. You know, if Brian Wilson was in a healthier place, he tours with the band and probably comes up with one more um, cute, surfy album. Instead, he, he like has a breakdown, can barely handle what fame has brought him goes deep within himself and just pours his heart out into this music. I think that's what you're getting at with the, the, the lyrical content. It's so different than the little bit yeah. that I know about their back catalog before that. And I think you see 
uh, maybe a more frail, honest, and authentic uh, lyricist present in this one than you do on probably any of their others. I don't know enough about the stuff that came after it. It's certainly possible that, you know, that continued on from there, but right. that shows my music history ignorance, I guess, or Beach Boys history ignorance, I guess. There are some genres and times that we're more familiar with, and this one I think is one that we've discovered. We are less familiar with kind of the history there, but that's okay. I can still appreciate the music. So, is this ranking, the number two ranking, is this sound logic for Rolling Stone to put it at number two? Unfortunately, I'm going to have it have to give it our first baby shark. No, uh. I'm just um, yeah, absolutely. In fact, the dreaded baby shark. <laughs> I would probably bump it up to number one. Really? Yeah. I, I feel. And now is that, when you say that, is that just, just sonically or your enjoyment or how, how are you putting that ahead? There are a few songs on Sergeant Pepper's that I could live without. And I okay. think that this is a deeper album, um, track to track. I just think it has a bit more complexity, a bit better lyrical content. Sergeant Pepper may have uh, better pop hits on it. That may be the one thing that nudges it above. Um, I just think this is a more structurally sound album. I, I'm, I'm struggling to find words to put to it and I wonder if it's just because I, I like it. <laughs> and uh, there are things that I don't love about some of the Sgt. Pepper's stuff. And, it, and maybe that's why it made it easier to talk about is that tension. I love it. And also there are pieces that I, you know, want to wrestle with. This is just good. Well, and again, this list is put together by, by critics, by music writers, people who are yep. in the industry. And when you can dig deep, and listen to an album like this and probably have yep. more exposure than the average person and probably see why it's so good. I think, personally, there are better albums that come after this on the list. I don't know that I would put it at number two. Um, and my question is, do you think the people who created this list felt obligated to put it at number two because it's well documented that this album directly influenced the album that they put at number one? Well, I hadn't given that much thought. You're going to put an album at number one. You, you have to put the album. Well, if, if, this, if there's another album that was the inspiration of that album and we didn't put that album first, well, we have to put it second. Do you think that influenced their decision to put it at number two? But shouldn't that, by that logic, Rubber Soul should be number three? Yeah. Well, obviously they didn't. Well, maybe they didn't use that logic, and I'm just making that up. Don't get me. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, it's an awesome album, and you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't have a big problem that is at number two. Um, I'm, right, right. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying though, and actually, I'm starting to listen ahead, and I think we both. Yeah, I won't reference <laughs> what album it is, but there's an album here coming up in the top ten that I just don't enjoy much at all but in every track that i listen to i hear the foundation it built for the music to come after it and i'm still a little bit torn about whether that makes something great or not is seminal necessarily greatness 
or is it just the person bold enough to sort of push the rock down the hill? I don't know. Um, I, I think Pet Sounds is something more than that. Pet Sounds does not strike me as an album that sparked a thousand other albums. Pet Sounds seems like it stands on its own. And so does um, Sgt. Pepper's, so does uh, Rubber Soul. Uh, and it probably has something to do with my personal enjoyment. Um, if I didn't love this album, I probably would say, yeah, it's here only because it, it inspired others' greatness. But I really like it, and I think that's a major difference for me in, in how my list would end up being ranked. I do, I'm not sure at what point we do this, but I would love to, maybe after we get to top 10 or top 20, put together our own reshuffling of like where we would order those albums. Yeah, that would be really interesting, and uh, I'm sure we'll get us a ton of incredibly negative attention. <laughs> Any Let's attention go for is it. good attention at this point. Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. No, uh, you know, I would like to do that. And, I mean, again, you think about who created this top 500 list. You know, we are not in the same league as those people. We're not in the same industry. And there's a lot of reasons why, you know, as we said, what makes an album great? There's so many different things that are going into it. Uh, sound, how much people like it sales, charts, influence, et cetera, et cetera. So many things. I'm just going to say at the end of the day, it is a great album. Yep. And at the end of the day, every ranking list is flawed. Um, This Rolling Stone one that we're going off of is flawed in my eyes because of the way that it's fairly narrow in its understanding of genre. Um, Mm -hmm. This is 500 great rock albums with a few exceptions. And it's, 500 great albums, mostly from the 60s to the 90s, with a few exceptions. Um, you know, human beings have been around for thousands of years, and <laughs> we're really <Yeah. laughs> saying greatness all occurred in the last 50 years. Uh, but anyway, I, I still think it's something to start from, and it, I've enjoyed the conversation so far. And I hope that uh, our listeners enjoy it too. It's been I'm really having a great time, and I can't wait to to get to the next one. How about you? Uh, Two down, 498 to go. Woohoo! What is that next one? Yeah, our next album is number three, Revolver by the Beatles. I've never heard of that band before. Uh, The Beatles, uh, yeah, they had a few uh, really good ditties. (laughs) They spelled it wrong, though. So thank you once again for listening to Sound Logic, and we will see you next time for album number three, Beatles Revolver. Thanks, everyone. Sound Logic podcast on Facebook if there's something you want to be hearing in a future episode. Thanks for listening.